One day you'll, one day you'll realize that throws the pastor off when you clap at him. <laughs> it is, it is very uh, good for us to be here again this morning. We actually came up yesterday for a reunion. Um, um, of course, the theme is dumber and dumb and dumber. And uh, I, you got to know, I didn't intend to dress like Elvis today, um, except for a little, little bit of flash. Um, Dumb and Dumber, learning what not to do is when you leave your good shirt for church on the railing as you hurry and try to get out of the house. Um, so, too bad for the shirt, I guess. It's good to be here. There are certain things um, you know um, that we eat uh, or drink that leave a bitter taste in our mouths. Um, lemon, lime, uh, the coffee I had in the motel last night. Grapefruit, um, some dark, like real dark chocolate, like the 70-80% dark chocolate, rhubarb, um, choke cherries that we used to eat at grandma's off the tree in the field that just, I mean, they just twisted your face kind of bitter. I was at the dentist last Monday and that left a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, Me trying to sleep last night in the motel and Wanda as well and... Um, out of that sleep, you start to hear people just down the hall who um, are using their outdoor voice indoors and children running up the hallway and I start to get agitated inside. Um, and I start to think, you know, what should I do? Because I, I don't want to get out of bed. I was hoping if I laid long enough, Wanda might get up out of bed and <laughs> deal with them, but... But I'm uh, starting to get a bad taste in my mouth because of, uh, of these people. This morning, I thought I'm going to get up really early and just go over my notes, uh, sermon notes. So I went down, grabbed a coffee in the lobby, and, um, which left a bitter taste in my mouth. And a guy comes out uh, down the stairs. He comes into the lobby, and he's t- there to check out. Now, when you go to the motel, um, they, they do swipe your credit card, so you get in the system, Right? This guy thought when they did that with his credit card last night that they, he already paid for himself. So he came out this morning and the guy asked, I'm sitting here focusing on sermon notes, dumb and dumber stuff. And this guy is asked to give his credit card again. He said, no, I already paid last night. And his voice is getting louder. And the guy behind the counter is getting louder and more agitated, which makes this guy defensive. You shouldn't talk to a customer like this. And I'm watching this circus kind of happen in front of me. And the, the guy literally grabs his suitcase and I'm out of here. And he left with a very bitter taste in his mouth, I'm sure. And he's probably thinking, I'll never go to that place again, all this kind of stuff. There are many things that you and I experience in life where we could say that that left a bitter taste in my mouth. And a lot of those things mean... It was hurtful, it was painful, it was embarrassing, it was shaming. And our response, whether it's spoken or or not, is, I won't do that again, or I won't go there again, or I won't let that happen again, I won't talk to her again, I certainly won't trust him again. But there's a big difference to me between a bitter taste and a bitter attitude or response to something, right? Right? One is, one is a sense of something. The other is that you're doing something about it and it just starts to eat away at you. So it, it, it's just, uh, it goes from something that's annoying 
to something that really um, has messed with you and really wrecks things. The big difference between the two, I would say, is like, you hurt me deeply on the one hand, but with God's help, I'll work it out. That's kind of like a grace response to me. The other one is, you hurt me deeply, and I hate you for it, and I will never talk to you again. Clenched teeth. And I think nobody alive doesn't deal with something that can take them to a place where we think or feel that way, whether it's for a brief time or not. That can just be a part of the reality of our our lives. And so as much as I think that's real for us, and sometimes it's an annoying neighbor (laughs) um, who maybe he has parties late at night and it's regular and it just drives you nuts. I've seen neighbors move because of neighbors that do that rather than trying to get that other neighbor to move. And it seems odd to me. There's a principle I think that's significant. It's in your bulletin. Holding on to wrongs done to you will always leave a bitter taste in your mouth. Holding on to things done against you will always leave a bitter taste in your mouth. You might put a smile on. You might pretend it's way back there, but it will always leave something inside of you because it's still raw, it's still fresh, and you still haven't processed it. Note this. We don't become bitter by chance. We become bitter by choice. It is a path down that we've chosen to take. You never wake up in the morning with the realization that, whoa, I'm a bitter person. Other people see it. They see it maybe long before you did. But nobody just is surprised. Wow, I'm bitter. It's a path that we choose to go down. So there's a unique story in the Bible about a man named Haman that many of you are familiar with who took a journey on what I call the trail down to bitterness, because it's never a trail up. It's always a trail down. Haman's story gives us insight into being dumb and dumber as it, is relate, as it relates to bitterness. And it is a great example of learning what not to do. And the story of Haman actually begins with, with a man named Mordecai and his younger cousin Esther, who is an orphan girl. And Mordecai treats Esther as his own daughter, and he cares for her, and he kind of... Uh, looks after her well-being. That's his role in her life. Um, A sidebar about Mordecai is uh, something very significant because Mordecai at one point, um, I I can't remember if before or after Esther was a part of the king's world, um, he heard about a plot against the king's life. And he got word to the king's officials that dealt with this and the two people that plotted this were hanged. And I need you to remember that because this good deed um, originally just was kind of forgotten. Although it was written down in the Chronicles of the King's records, it was forgotten. There are significant and noticeable markers on the trail down to bitterness. And we're going to look at five of them this morning. The first is becoming larger than life. Um, A lot of ways that's used in a positive context, but in some ways it's not. Becoming larger than, than life can mean... Uh, something a lot different than something good. Um, The beginning of chapter 3 of of Esther says, King Xerxes honored or promoted Haman, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all of the nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. In this story, Haman comes out of nowhere, seemingly. Just all of a sudden, beginning of a new chapter, 
there's Haman, and he gets promoted. I don't know if he had something to do with those two people that plotted against the king, but somehow he was still on the king's radar. Somehow he had done something that helped him to climb the ranks of importance, proving himself worthy of such a position over the most important people in the king's realm. But such a promotion could really mess with your head. It could really mess with your perception of yourself as a normal person. Maybe you have experienced that. Maybe you know people in that kind of a place where um, you give them this much authority and power and all of a sudden something changes. Haman became a public figure. Now he has a title. Suddenly he is influential and powerful and he has the authority of the king behind him. Now he is a very important person. And in this lies a snare. Promotion and position and power can lead to an exaggerated sense of self-importance. We start to realize that when we look in the mirror, um, people look at us differently. Now we're, we, we seem to have some notoriety behind us that uh, people turn their head for. What people say to you in this instance goes to your head. The affirmation makes you feel good about yourself. Your attitude toward yourself and other people starts to shift, starts to slide into the look at me mentality. I must be pretty good for them to treat me like this. I read about a young pastor who believed there were people in his church who were actually beginning to view him as their favorite preacher. Their favorite preacher. One day he was flattered... um, uh, when he heard that someone in the, in the congregation had described him as a, a model preacher, he thought that sounded pretty good. That made him feel great. So his pride didn't last too long about the sentiment because one of the things he did right after the service was go into his office, pull out his dictionary, and looked up the word model. And it said, a small imitation of the real thing. <laughs> he, he thought, well, maybe I'm not as favored as I imagined. So regardless, he, he, he just maintained the possibility that um, he truly was becoming favored among his peers and the people liked him until the following week when somebody described him as a warm preacher. A warm preacher. You know, it sounded good like he was a caring, empathetic, compassionate, kind preacher. So to him it was quite complimentary until he went back to his office after the service, pulled out his dictionary once again and looked up the word warm. It meant not so hot. <laughs> Haman was self-deceived. He had started to believe that the photoshopped picture of him was the real ideal. That was the real thing. This is where we become dumb. Unable to recognize the truth about ourselves. We start to believe that we are something that we truly aren't. For years, I wrestled with um, components of that. Until I just started to be more stubborn about this is who I am. This is how I'm gifted. This is what I'm not like. This is what I'm not. These are not my strengths. And it's amazing. Um, people will build you up and elevate you sometimes about things that have nothing to do with what's strong about you. But you start to play to that because you love the affirmation. And the problem is you neglect what God's gifted you to do. You've, you begin to neglect the things about you that add value to other people because you're playing to your, your weaknesses instead of your strengths. And this was a significant thing um, for Haman, and it is for us as well. It would help us to take the Apostle Paul's advice from Romans chapter 12 before somebody tells us or before we have to learn it the hard way. 
Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Do not be conceited. And what helps us to be conceited is what other people think of us. And we start to believe it. When you become too big for your own boots, that's when you begin to stumble. Marker number two on the trail down to bitterness is being easily offended. When you believe you are God's gift to the world, it will shake you up when other people don't think so. And don't act accordingly. They don't respond to you accordingly. When someone is offended, they are often noted for overreacting, sometimes in an emotional outburst. It could, because it's, it's annoying, because this is wrong. Haman was honored. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, we read earlier, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but circle all the buts in the Bible that pertain to these kinds of things, because it means something substantial. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, when you deserve respect, or, or when you especially demand respect and don't get it, you are not going to be a happy camper. His reason for not bowing down was he was a Jew. And, of course, a, a faithful Jew only bows down to one. And who is that? It's Yahweh. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will not bend a knee at all for you. doesn't matter who you are if you're not God Almighty. And so Haman is offended, to put it mildly. When Haman, verse 5 of chapter 3, when Haman saw Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him, he was enraged, which literally means filled with wrath. Filled with wrath. I can hear him uh, like sometimes I think about people or have responded or seen other people the clenched teeth, how dare you not do what you should be doing? And you can, you can almost feel the bitterness, the, the acidity in the words as they come out of the mouth like venom. Do you not know who I am? And if you're larger than life, then you've got a lot to lose, like Haman. You've got a lot to prove because people are watching you. Your good name, the respect of others, and even your own reputation is at stake. And people um, who are watching you make you very aware of that. And you're always watching your back at the same time. Because if you have to keep this perception up of who you really are, or think you are, believe you are, then it's a lot of work to keep it up. At least your title and the letters behind your name say as much. Because after all, you feel very important. To me, this is self-importance kind of gone mad. It's the extreme. One man refuses to bow down to Haman. And Haman becomes completely unglued. Just because someone wouldn't um, even nod in recognition of who he was. Isn't it often, as we look back at the chaos and conflict of our lives sometimes, how almost embarrassing it is to go back in that journey to where it started and realize it was just because of one word that we heard or some simple little innocent thing that was overlooked and I just let it grow and grow and grow and grow until it starts eating me away and I start affect, it starts affecting the people in my life. Easily offended. Brings to the third marker of, on this trail down to bitterness. Making a mountain out of a molehill. Be honest with me. Have you ever made a mountain out of a molehill? Yeah? I think all of us have. 
Um, I, I do that. I, I still do that. Um, my typical to re- response to a lot of new things that really makes me think about that I got to change or whatever, my immediate response is that wonderful two-letter letter word with an exclamation mark behind it. No. <laughs> Not going to do that. And then afterwards, yeah, I'll do that. Um, because I thought it through. But my knee-jerk reaction is, whoa, it's this self-protection kind of thing. I don't know if that's more, more a guy thing uh, than a lady thing. Um, but that's just a reality. We just, just the little things. And we make a big thing about little things. Because looking back at what we already talked about, when you become larger than life, your inflated view of yourself makes you vulnerable to be offended. When people think differently about you, when the adoration you think you deserve doesn't come your way. And when you are in a position of authority and power, you have to deal with people swiftly and harshly for their failure to comply with your every whim. That was Naaman's approach, or Haman's approach. He just said, I just can't tolerate this. And this is where the original issue gets blown way out of proportion. This is where we get dumber. Our pride is wounded. Our ego um, receives a blow. And especially in Eastern culture in, in particular, um, people will do anything they can to save face, especially, especially publicly. If you are disregarded in public, it's the greatest shame that you could experience. So you'll do anything to save face. So once again, Haman is found overreacting, this time in an extreme plan of action. Verse 6 of chapter 3, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing Mordecai. This is the guy that he was enraged at just a few moments before. Haman looked instead for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The original issue was a perceived lack of respect. Plain and simple. A perceived lack of respect. Haman's ultimate response was genocide, the mass execution of the Jewish race. One man won't bow down to me. Let's kill them all. Seems kind of over the top, extreme. Overreacting to the ultimate. Certainly, at least making a mountain out of a molehill. So Haman goes to the king. He tells the king what's going on. He tells the king that he, what he would like to do to kill these Jews. He even bribes him. He says, I will give you so much money um, to, to, to finance this, to fund this, to put into the king's coffers. And I will do all of these kinds of things to make it happen. And so the king um, says, sure, here's my ring too, my signet ring. And that's what you will stamp your seal on in hot wax to make sure that that seal is noted when the people read this decree that you write. And he writes this decree, sends it all across the, king's, the kingdom with the king's seal, with the king's signature. And he's delighted in this. It makes him just, it's exciting for him. So in this decree, the essence of the decree says, literally, you see it in verse 13 of chapter 3 in Esther, is to destroy, as if one word isn't good enough, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. It's like there's nothing left of these people. Um, the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, and to seize their possessions as plunder. And of course, all of the Jews' possessions would be the money he'd raise to pay the king off uh, with the original uh, bribe that he'd promised to him. So it says at the end of chapter 3, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, probably celebrating this awesome thing they decided to do, the whole city of Susa was in confusion. 
meaning the Jews had already found out what this decree was all about because it had been disseminated to the whole realm. And there's panic, there's emotion, everything. And the whole city's in confusion while the king and his right-hand man are uh, sipping wine or whatever they were doing uh, to celebrate their great choice. Marker number four on the trail down to bitterness is going off the deep end. As if it couldn't get any worse. Um, Haman's uh, step down just got one step worse. The word that defines this stage of the the trail down to bitterness to me is irrational. Haman Haman, uh, is no longer even thinking straight. He thought he had made it in the king. He had it made in the king's presence. It's as if he was untouchable. Um, It's it's as if he was um, invincible. He had the favor of the king of all things. So certainly in this place, nobody can bother me. Mordecai wants Esther to go to the king. She too is a Jew. The king does not know that she is a Jew. And Esther is reluctant to do this. She's nervous. I think she fears for her own life. And then um, Mordecai speaks these words, probably the most well-known to us from the book of Esther. And who knows but that you have come to royal position, what's the rest of it, for such a time as this. He had earlier said, if you don't do it, God's going to raise somebody else up that will be a deliverer for Israel. But who knows that it might be you that might be the one that God has raised up to do his, accomplish his purposes in such a time as this, for such a time as this. I think he does that with us sometimes too. If we don't step up to do what God wants us to do, um, he will use somebody else. Or else what he asked you to do will never happen because you never obeyed what God was asking you to do. So Esther concedes. She goes to the king and asks. He asks what she wants. She said, first of all, well, I want to give a banquet for you and Haman today. It's already prepared. And then I want to give you one tomorrow and tomorrow I'll tell you what I want. So Haman, think Haman, right? Haman is tickled pink. He's tickled pink. Three of them. And he's the one that gets invited to have dinner with the king and queen. So when he leaves this first banquet, he is elated at his good fortune. Then we read these words um, in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, because he had to go through the king's gate to go home... That he did not stand up, I like this next part, that he not, did not tremble before him. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife. He's just furious inside because this guy, as he, even as he's walking by him in the gate, refuses to bow down before him or to be nervous because of his power. So he just kind of keeps his composure until he gets back home. Then he kind of sulks to his, his friends and his wife. And there he commences to display his ego and his pride, and he recounts how powerful and important he is, how many kids he has, including how special he must be, that he alone was invited by Queen Esther, Esther to have a banquet with her and the king. It's all about me. It's all about how great I am, and I don't understand this Mordecai, Mordecai guy. And then he said all these words. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I have everything I could ever dream of. 
and yet this one guy is driving me nuts. Then his, his wife and his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go, go with the king to the dinner and be happy. <laughs> this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. That'd be fun. It's like, seriously. I, I know enough about hanging that all it takes is a few inches to get you off your feet when you hang for you to die. Let's make one seven and a half stories tall. <laughs> now, I know in ancient times, even in Western times, in the 1800s, in, in the West here, wherever, um, a hanging was a public spectacle. This is what can, is going to happen to you if you do this. Um, and again, everything now is to the extreme. You see this, right? Everything is to the extreme because this, it's, it's gone from annoyance to grudge to anger to rage um, to this uh, just mindless sense of how you deal with the bitterness in your heart. And that's what happens to us. When we go from anger to bitterness, our perspective is so blurred, we are so jaded that we can hardly make sense anymore. Even bad ideas make good sense to us. He could have objected, why not 20 feet tall? <laughs> But it delighted him to think this way. The final, the fifth and final marker on the trail down to bitterness is kind of the marker that to us when we get to that point, it's like too late. Like there's damage done that we'll have to deal with now. And it's realizing that bitterness is actually destructive. It is a problem. It is not a healthy thing. And I would say that this is the beginning of the end for Haman. That night, the king could not sleep. Um, chapter 6, the first few verses. Middle of the night, the king could not sleep. It's like pastors sometimes. Usually on a Saturday night, the pastor can't sleep, so he gets up and thinks. <laughs> you got to shut this off. But the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It's like one of his attendants brings the book, and it's like a bedtime story. Um, just start reading through me about... Um, what life has been like in my kingdom, and as, a, as, my, as I was, as has been a king, the different kinds of things that have happened. And it was, re, it was found recorded there, it says, that Mordecai had exposed these two men, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, two of the most important people in his life, who would not let other people get to the king, were the ones that were going to kill him, remember, at the beginning of the story. And what honor, the king asked the question after this story is read, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The attendants answer and say, nothing has been done for him. In this story, we get to the humiliation of Haman. Because at this point, the gallows are built. It's probably early morning. Uh, the day has begun. Um, and Mordecai now is coming to the king to say, I've got the gallows built and this is what I want to do. It's not about the Jews anymore. That's already settled. All the Jews are going to be killed. But I want to deal with Mordecai now. So he's going, this is why he's going to the king. So the king asks, after having this read to him, um, is there anybody in the court, meaning is there any one of my officials that has the power to deal with this, uh, um, to deal with honoring Mordecai in the court? Yeah, Haman's out there. Haman's out there. So the king says, bring him in. And the king says to Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. And here's the arrogance of, Amon's, uh, of Haman, the how important am I? Haman thought to himself, 
Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? That's what he's thinking. Cool. So he's thinking, what's the best thing um, that I could have done for myself? That's how he's responding. So he says, for the man the king delights to honor, uh, verses 7 and 9 in chapter 6, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. So he wants one of the king's own robes. The flashy, the colorful, all of that stuff of royalty. And bring a horse that the king has ridden. He wants one of the king's own horses. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them robe the man the king delights to honor. And lead him on the horse through the city streets. Proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. He's saying, that would be so cool. (laughs) Me on the horse, dressed in purple. I forgot to ask for the crown, but that's okay. That would just be awesome. This is his thinking. The king says, basically pointing at him, go, do exactly as you had said for Mordecai, and don't miss anything of what you have said. Now imagine your immediate emotional response to hearing those words. You have come, you are delighted, because you just have had a 75-foot gallows built, and you have the power to kill this man, to have him killed. And you're going to the king to say, this is what I've done, this is what I've done. And, and this is the man who I'm going to do this to. And the king says, you are going to go and honor him publicly with your mouth. You are going to walk on the floor and you're going to pull this horse. And you're going to say all these acclamations and platitudes to this man riding the horse. This guy that you just loathe and want killed. So after it was all over, after this utter humiliation, verse 12 and 13 says, Haman rushed home with head covered in grief, and I would also probably think shame, and told his wife everything that had happened to him. And of course, when one goes to one's wife, one expects some form of of compassion and uh, something. His advisors... And his wife said to him, Since Mordecai, and listen to the words, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet, banquet Esther had prepared. So now it has come so full circle that I imagine he is terrified. I, I imagine, I've been in situations where um, I've known that the things that I've done, as soon as you realize it's done or been exposed, terror comes over you. You're just terrified of what the implications could be. And Haman now has, I mean, he's powerless because the king's eunuchs themselves are delivering him to the king and the queen to have another banquet. The one yesterday, which he left thinking, this is so cool. Look at me. And it isn't very long um, after this, um, at the banquet, sitting at the table, all the beautiful food, all this kind of stuff. The king says to Esther and Mordecai and, and Haman squirming, I imagine. What's your request? What's your request? Esther said, grant me my life and spare my people. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. She used some of the similar words that were in the decree. And of course, 
Um, this is the king's most beloved wife. Uh, if you read the text, she was just, she profoundly impacted the king's life. And now the king is seething. Now the king has teeth gritted. Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? You're Haman, right? How small can you slink down in your chair at the table? How could you get out of the building? How can you flee his presence? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And of course, um, forthwith, Haman is taken out and hanged on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai. When we're bitter, we can become vengeful and irrational. We can harm our family, lose our friends, our jobs, our people's, and people's respect. We can even cause our own self-destruction. Bitterness will eat you alive. Stresses like bitterness or bitternesses like stress, um, the more you um, are in it, the more it destroys you. It can physically kill you if you let it. Heart attacks, you name it, the diseases, um, the ailments that come from living a life of stress and distress. It, it's, it's astounding, let alone what could be done to you as in Haman's case. Haman became dumb and dumber as time went on. For Mordecai, it was the absolute opposite, a different story. If you go flip ahead to chapter 9, verse 4, in the New American Standard Version, it says, and again, Haman went further down and down and down. It says of Mordecai, the man Mordecai became greater and greater. And it's amazing to me... um, the injustices in life and all of these kinds of things in life, how God can turn it around and flip it to such a way that God is honored and your life has a, it's just, it's new and it's different because of what God did because you did the right thing. So I want to uh, suggest two necessities to avoid the, biz, the bitterness trail down. The first necessity is the essential character quality, which is a humble disposition. And a humble disposition is an honest view of yourself before God and people. No masks, no pretending. Um, you don't pay attention to photoshopped pictures. This is just who you are. And if, if people don't respect and, and believe in you and accept you as you are, whose problem is it? It's not yours. But it takes, um, it takes a, a, a God, person who's confident in the Lord and in what God has done in your life and how he's created you to be, to be okay with who you are. Because there's no one else on the planet like you. And God designed it that way. No matter what other people say or do or how they act towards you. A humble disposition. There is something important, very important about that. Hebrews twelve fifteen says... See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. You have something to do with that. You see to it. It's your choice. When something comes your way, that humble trust in God says, I don't have to be that way. Because if I am like that, then this bitter root is the beginning of a bad journey. That bitter root, the word bitter... um, is an amazing word. It literally, um, literally means acrid, that is, irritating and corrosive. 
And it also means poison, translated poison. So that bitter root, we think it's about the other person, but that destroys us. Bitterness destroys the one that is bitter. The root of bitterness is arrogance. The preventative for bitterness is humility. The second necessity is what I would say the hardest but the best decision. And the decision is to have a forgiving spirit. I've heard from people, don't ask me to forgive. And of course, you, you can say what you want. It's a choice they make or not. At its core, bitterness is unforgiveness. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness. And the idea is not just push it aside, not just walk away from it and pretend it isn't there, but it's this sense where you, um, uh, in different verses in the New Testament, it talks about casting, like casting your cares upon the Lord is the same idea, which literally means take it, throw it, give it to him, don't touch it ever again because it's not in your hands anymore. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving. If you don't forgive, God has a problem with you. Because now it's your problem. Not the other person. It doesn't matter what they've done for you. That's God's department. It's how you handle yourself. That's why it's the hardest but best decision to have a forgiving spirit. The word forgiving, the root word of forgiving is grace or gracious. That's the root. The most common meaning peculiar to the New Testament, this word means to pardon. That is to graciously remit a person's sin. It's the idea of setting a prisoner free. I've heard of that in the justice system. Um, This guy was given a pardon, which means we no longer hold you as a prisoner. But when it comes to bitterness and unforgiveness... I am the one that's in prison, not the one that I have a problem with. Your personal story and your history, and even the church's story and history, has chapters that are not pretty. Every one of us. Some of it's raw, some of it's painful, shameful. And we can all allow that stuff with God's help to shape us and to make us what God wants us to be, to make us stronger, to make us more like Jesus. Or... I I imagine in my mind it can be more like a sliver that hurts and swells and infects and pusses up until you deal with it. It can annoy us, frustrate us, anger us, leading to unforgiveness and ultimately to bitterness. And it's God's job to deal with those who have hurt us. It's our job with God's help to forgive those who have hurt us. We know that that could take time. But it's important to begin the journey. I love a a couple of quotes. Um, One author, I don't know the author of this quote, when you forgive, you do not erase the memory. You simply forgive to free yourself from the bitterness. The memory stays not to be forgotten, but to be remembered as a valuable lesson. But when you forgive, that has no more power over you anymore, even though you can't forget it. Another author said, the pure love of Christ can remove the scales of resentment and wrath from our eyes. Allowing us to see others the way our Heavenly Father sees us as flawed and imperfect mortals who have the potential and worth far beyond our capacity to imagine. Because God loves us so much, we too must love each other or forgive each other. Forgiveness is the only cure ultimately for bitterness. Two takeaways. 
Identify personal weak spots where you could be susceptible to bitterness. We're all wired differently. There are things in us that people, even unaware of it, push our buttons. And we need to know what our buttons are. When, when something twists in us and we're starting to go sideways on something, we need to stop and ask, whoa, where'd that come from? What's inside of me that allowed that to happen? Second of all, we refuse to allow bitterness to take root in your mind and heart. You say, that's really hard. Well, it certainly is. Scripture says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, give it to God so God can deal with it. Do something about it. Choose love and forgiveness over bitterness. Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned for years, um, writes this about that time as it came to an end. He says, as I walked out of the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I would still be in prison. And that's how a lot of people walk around. You meet people every day, and you know that there's something broken, there's something wrong, there's, there's, there's pain, there's a wound somewhere. And only God knows really what it is. But our response needs to be one of compassion, Harry Emerson Fosdick said, bitterness imprisons life, love releases it. Bitterness paralyzes life, love empowers it. Bitterness sours life, love sweetens it. Bitterness sickens life, love heals it. Bitterness blinds life, love anoints the eyes. I'll close with these words and then we'll conclude our service this morning with Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Therein lies freedom and joy and peace that cannot be encountered in your life when you hold on to things that keep you bitter. God, I thank you. I thank you that even um, where we sit or stand right now, we know exactly what we're like. We know the things that we wrestle with. Uh, We know the things that are very difficult for us to handle, uh, the injustices, the unkindness, the shameful deeds, all of those things. And I thank you, Father, that through Jesus, um, you dealt with all of that evil, um, whether it was against us or not. On the cross, you dealt with it. And to complement that, Jesus, when you went to be with the Father, you gave us um, what Scripture calls the comforter, the helper, to literally walk alongside us, the Holy Spirit's role is, to give us strength, to give us the power to journey on, to give us the ability um, to forgive as we certainly would love to be forgiven. And I just pray for God, God, for each one here today as they leave this place. Um, we each go into what we'd call the real world where um, there are people who are not nice, where there's a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of woundedness, And even personally and with the people in our immediate circle of influence, um, there's so much potential for hurt and anger and bitterness. And I pray, Jesus, that we would be people of love and compassion and mercy. And that when we need to ask forgiveness, we would do it promptly. But God, that we would extend forgiveness as you give us opportunity as well, that we might be a blessing to others. But Jesus, may you give us a sweet spirit 
the spirit of Jesus that would repel all bitterness and unkindness, that we'd be a blessing to others through you. Amen. God bless you as you go.